Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast. And if you've been listening, we've been doing a monthly series called Stories and Becoming More Human. And then also we're doing a little bit of a series, a short series that I started during COVID um, and during the pandemic shutdown. But we're doing a short series on the, the research that we did called Future Ready. But I want to jump in and with one of the longer conversations that I normally do with friends and experts in education. And so today I'm with Thomas Arnett. And Thomas has been on the podcast before. Um, and so we'll link to that and make sure you hear the prior conversation. But we've got a new conversation today. He's Senior Research Fellow for the Clayton Christensen Institute. His work focuses on using the theory of disruptive innovation to study innovative instructional models and their potential to scale student-centered learning in K-12 education. And that's really what we talked about last time. But he recently wrote a blog uh, for the Christensen Institute called New Value Networks, the Missing Piece in K-12 Disruption. Uh, or in the K to 12 disruption equation. And so we've seen a lot of disruption. We've seen a lot of different things. There's some great things in this blog and I'll make sure to get it out there and link it to this. But, but Thomas, great seeing you, number one. Number two, can you just jump in and give us an idea of what you mean by value networks before we get rolling? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me start and just say, thanks, Eric. It's so great to, to reconnect and uh, thanks for inviting me on your podcast. So yeah, this idea of value networks. Um, probably the easiest way to explain it is to give an example. So it's a term that comes from Clayton Christensen's research on disruptive innovation. Um, and in the context of businesses that were often the, the focus of his research, value network meant kind of the external ecosystem of a company or of an organization. Um, that really um, affects its business model and kind of defines its cost structure and really ends up defining its priorities. So for a business, a value network might be your investors, your customers, your suppliers, your distributors, the competitive landscape you sit within. All of those ex external entities shape kind of how your business model takes root and where it, how it thrives. And um, therefore, end up shaping the priorities of that business model. And so Christensen studied value networks and he said, you know, when you look at why incumbent organizations, incumbent companies miss disruptive innovation, uh, he'd point to their value networks and say, look, you know, the value network was pushing it to, to not prioritize that particular innovation. And that's why it missed the boat. Well, I think the same thing applies to school systems, but in a school system, the value network is a little bit different. For one, you know, you've got more than just uh, profit motives. Um, and so it's not just revenue sources that matter. Um, so a school's value network will include things like um, the state and the funding sources that come from the state and the strings that come attached to that funding, the policies that come from the state. Um, you know, those have a have a major role in shaping the priorities of a school system. But it's also, and this is where it's important to note, it's also, um, you know, the, the talent pipelines that you rely on, you know, where do you get teachers? How are they trained? What's their experience coming in? What are the, the culture and the mindsets and philosophies they bring to the job? Um, it's also, you know, the relationship you have with your local community, the relationship you have with your, you know, your local union. 
Um, and also, I think it's really important to parse too different families' interests and what they want from a school system. So you may have within a, a given school district, you know, some families that are all about, you know, I want a rigorous education that's going to prepare my child to be competitive, um, to get into top tier colleges and universities. Um, you may also have other families that say, hey, my, my kid has special needs and I need something that's really going to be adapted to and personalized to their particular needs. Um, at the same time, you may have other families or students where, you know, they've dropped out of the system. And for them, it's like, look, I, I, I'm really just interested in something that's going to engage my kid and get them back in school. Um, but in a school district, you've got all of these different external entities that have leverage both, you know, for the state through its funding that it provides, but also even without funding, you know, the democratic governance of a district um, gives these different, you know, different entities um, influence over what the district needs to prioritize in order to succeed and thrive and, and continue to, you know, to exist and do what it does. Um, and where that becomes insightful then is when you look at particular innovations that school systems will or won't adopt, um, and you look at the value network they sit within, um, you start to see that the value network plays a huge role in shaping what kind of innovations can get traction and which innovations can't. And then you also start to see if, you know, kind of the niche models out there, the schools that are doing things really differently or the programs that are doing things really differently, they have, you know, somewhat different value networks that they sit within that enable them to prioritize those types of innovations. Um, a couple more clarifications I'll make. Just sometimes people ask, you know, so what's the difference between value networks and stakeholders? There's a lot of overlap between those terms, but I think where I'd really parse the difference is that when people use the term stakeholders, they're usually referring to all the people who are affected by a school system, who benefit from a school system. And there's there's often an emphasis on inclusivity, like let's make sure that we're hearing all the stakeholders because we need to make sure it's serving their needs. And that's that's a good approach to take in terms of you know, a school system trying to be more responsive to people who may not have as much power within the value network. But the term value networks really tries to just take a more of a just describing how things are approach rather than how things should be um, and, and tries to focus on, okay, well, who of all these entities actually have leverage in shaping the priorities? And the reality is there's a lot of stakeholders who you know, a school system should recognize, but those stakeholders don't necessarily have leverage in the value network, either because, you know, their their social connections, their social influence, their how much, you know, the fact that they can provide revenue or not re or not provide revenue, like that's that's where those stakeholders actually get leverage. And value networks focuses on who actually has leverage in shaping the priorities, not just who should be included in shaping the priorities. Um, the other distinction I'll draw is the, the difference between a, a value network and a social network. So lots of school systems will, will join um, networks and communities um, of other school systems and other school leaders who are trying to do similar things. And those, are, those can be really valuable for sharing ideas and may even lead to a school system bringing new partners or new entities into its value network. You know, if you if you learn from your social network about a philanthropy, you know, a, a foundation that's funding a particular type of innovation and you go apply for their funding, well, that starts to bring that foundation into your value network. But a value network is really not around the exchange of ideas. It's around the flow of resources and the governance structures that actually end up shaping the priorities of, a, of an organization.
All right. So, so many questions. So many questions. <laughs> I gave you a lot there. Yeah. You did. <laughs> I should you have did. stopped talking sooner. <laughs> no, no, no. It's perfect. It's perfect because I think that's the explanation. And that's, you know, to help us, you know, to help educators who we, we kind of find ourselves in these spaces, right? We find ourselves in uh -huh. schools. We find ourselves leading. We find ourselves. And, and sometimes I think right now, educators often feel a little bit of like helpless amidst the system. Mm -hmm. Right. And so one of the questions like with this value networks for me that I'm wondering about, and you, 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 you kind of hint at it in your article is that, um, or you even come out and explicitly say it at, at some point in time is that, mm -hmm. that oftentimes, you know, we, we try to create something new, but then it, we're drawn back to the conventional way of doing and being um, even, you know, we're starting to see it with a lot with the post pandemic is, you know, all these new opportunities, all these, and you, you hint that we just layered on innovations. We didn't really change anything, you know, mm -hmm. and so we're still doing kind of the, the typical normative for school, but just, we kind of layered some, some technology innovations on top of what we typically do. Um, if I'm an educator and I'm sitting into this, like help the educator help us think about like that idea of, of how these value networks, if something doesn't disrupt it or gets disrupted about it, how it just pulls it back to the normative. Mm -hmm. And then maybe how, like I'm wondering even, and if this makes any sense, how we become more of designers of change rather than waiting the dis for the disruption to happen to us. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Let me tackle, <laughs> let me start tackling that and feel free to jump in and ask more questions or we can ask some more back and forth to go through it. But um, so I think one of the, one of the challenges that I think folks in education run into, um, or maybe another way to say it is like kind of the blinders that I think we often have on is that we tend to focus on the features of the educational experience and the model. So we focus on what are the practices that teachers should be doing? What are the systems and structures that need to be in place to enable those practices? And so we focus on, on documenting and understanding and trying to replicate the model without paying attention to that broader value network um, and realizing that new models need, new, need to be launched within new value networks to be able to prioritize what's unique and differentiating about that model. Um, I'll try a little on the fly analogy. It's like, or off on the, on the, yeah, on the fly analogy. If you're say you've got an ecosystem, that's a natural ecosystem that's full of squirrels and you decide we need more fish. Right. And it, you know, say you could, you know, play all powerful and you can design new animals. If you keep trying to design fish and put them in the squirrels habitat, they're just going to die. <laughs> and what you're going to keep getting is more squirrels, not fish. And that, it's kind of, I think, the same thing with uh, with value networks, where you need the, the broader conditions that can actually support the type of innovation you're trying to produce. Um, so to, to maybe put some like specific examples on this, one I'll, I'll mention, um, some folks might be familiar with the Lindsay Unified School District. You know, it's a district that gets held up a lot for doing some really cool um, uh, you know, learner-centered, learner-centered innovations there. Um, and it, I'll say my sense, my way of making sense of what Lindsay was able to accomplish with value networks, um, 
kind of stems from my own experience visiting the district. So I visited Lindsay probably five or six years ago. And at the time I was on the school board for the district where I was living. And I visited Lindsay and I thought, wow, they're doing some cool stuff. I would love to just take this back to my to my district and share it with the superintendent, share it with the other board members and see if we could do that kind of stuff here. And Lindsay even wrote a book that really talks about their particular practices and what they do. And I thought, you know, it should be easy. I just take this book back and and we share with them what Lindsay's doing and we start doing it here. But then I realized, you know, Lindsay was able to sh make the innovations and shifts that it made because there was broad consensus among their whole community that the conventional model was broken. Um, they had, you know, um, you know, their, their test scores were extremely low. Their graduation rates were really low. They had lots of problems with gangs and with teen pregnancy, huge teacher attrition. And so in that context, um, there was an appetite for, yeah, let's try something radically different because the conventional just does not work. It's proven that it's not working, um, you know, for pretty much everyone, educators, students, families, parents. Um, in contrast, the district where I was at, though, like there was a subset of the of the community for which school wasn't working, but there was also a huge subset for whom school, the conventional model was working pretty well, you know, families whose kids were you know, getting good grades and taking AP classes and going on to, to Stanford and Harvard and Brown. And, you know, the sports teams were doing well. The band program was, was taking awards at state competitions. And so for a lot of those folks, there, there wasn't an appetite for changing. And so I think that's where you start to see this value networks difference of, um, you know, if you've still got a lot of families that are happy with the conventional model, um, they're going to they're going to make it hard to adopt new models. Another example that I think illustrates that is um there's a nonprofit called New Classrooms that has a particular uh model for doing middle school math instruction where um they take a they combine a few different math classes, they blow out the walls um and they have a bunch of students and a bunch of educators um, doing a bunch of different learning activities within the same space. And the real <clears throat> innovation behind their model is um, every day they give us all the students and all the educators a custom playlist um, of what they should do that day. They do their learning activities. Some of it may be small group activities. Some of it may be like teacher-led lessons. Some of it may be tutoring. Some of it may be online activities. Um, and at the end of the day, they collect data they do quick checks for understanding and collect data on like, okay, did students master what they're supposed to learn today or not? And then they use that data overnight to build again, a new custom playlist for every single student. So one analogy is like, it's like the Pandora radio of education where the, the their system is learning about every student and what they need and what they're interested in, what gets them excited, and then building them a custom learning experience every day, given the resources that they have available within this model. Well, so that, they um, had a relationship with the Mountain View School District in, in the Bay Area um, to bring that model in. And the superintendent, as I understand, was like pretty excited about it, really saw potential um, for what this could do for helping all their learners be successful at math, which, you know, middle school math is one of those uh, kind of gateways to future opportunity to be able to take more advanced classes in high school and be able to have those on your on your transcript for when you apply to college. So middle school math, you know, really important. Um, but they introduced the program in, in the beginning of a, of a school year in the fall. And by the winter, it was basically 
relegated to just, you know, a minimal uh, experiment. And then by the end of the year was totally shut down. And, you know, when you look at why did this happen, um, you know, families just weren't used to lots of families, their students were successful. And they looked at things like, you know, they'd say, you know, if my, if your student is, is, does well in school, they'd say like, well, why, you know, my student does well, why are they struggling? Well, they're struggling because they're, they're right at their cusp of, of what's challenging to them instead of moving at the same pace as everyone else where they're, you know, they're ready to move ahead, but they're stuck with the conventional pace. Um, you know, or they'd say like, why is my student who should be in advanced classes with all these other students who aren't as advanced? Well, it's because the model, everyone's getting what they need. And so you can have kids at different levels in the same room, in the same class, but they're each getting what they need. Um, or they say like, well, why doesn't my student have homework? Well, because the model is designed to give them what they need during the class day instead of relying on them getting extra, extra, you know, focus practice at home. Um, so for all those reasons, even though the model worked and was a positive innovation for the school system at, writ large, um, the families of many of the students really pushed back hard and were writing letters to the superintendent and, and showing up at school board meetings. So just an example of where um, the value network of that school resisted that innovation, despite the fact that it had had some real positive potential. So I'll stop there and let's maybe, <laughs> I well, think I've got, got talking too long again, but. Uh, no, 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 it's perfect because, yeah. because the, 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 because you can go so many different directions with some of this and, and, and this is some of the challenge, right? Fitting it into mm -hmm. a podcast and the, but it is worth like the consideration and the imagination, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's part of this that, you know, my, my heart wants to go and talk about the policy side of things that, uh -huh. that sets up the, the conditions in a lot of ways for mm -hmm. the creation of value networks or new value networks. But then a lot of me wants to go to the educator side of things where I have been that teacher that was in mm -hmm. a system trying to do something, you know, disruptive or innovative or learner centered, mm -hmm. but the system kept pulling me back to the normative and, mm -hmm. and then, you know, stepping outside of that system to, to, to kind of figure it out. Because like, even in, in the article you write, it says developing new organizational models for K to 12 education is challenging because most K to 12 funding and most opportunities to create new programs and schools are tied to conventional value networks. So let's mm -hmm. go to the policy side of things first, mm -hmm. because like if funding is set up, you know, and, and, and the value networks follow the funding and the structures, if the funding set up a certain way, like how do we change that impact that? Yeah. Or how are you even rethinking like even that perspective of what does it mean to fund it differently so that then you can have new value networks and new creation happen um, if mm -hmm. the current funding mechanisms pull us back to the conventional or the common. Yeah, well, I think right now it's finding the pockets, um, but you're right, you know, I, I've mainly emphasized like the side of the value network that is families and what they demand, but policy is huge. In fact, going back to that earlier example of new class, new classrooms, um, one of the things they'll tell you is that, you know, their model works best when students can move or when students can focus on the content that is appropriate for them, given their current, you know, their current level. But um, sometimes your current level is not, is not the same as the grade level that you're, that you're in as a student. And so they really struggle sometimes where they'll go to, they'll set up their model in a school district and the district will say, well, 
we need you to just focus on the grade level content. And they'll say like, yeah, but you know, these kids, we know, cause we've seen, we've done this so much. We know that if, if a student is at a second grade level, if we just teach him seventh grade content, sixth grade content, it's, it's not going to work as well as if we start with where he's at and, and, and move him forward and accelerate him. And they say, you know, if we do, if we focus on where he's at, well, we can, we, we, he may not get all the way to the end of grade level standards, but he'll make huge gains in growth um, that are super valuable in the big picture. But because the states are only testing the grade level standards for that student, the schools feel, no, we need you to focus on the grade level standards. And it actually undermines the effectiveness of the model. So, you know, another, anyway, that's all to say example of where policy can get in the way. But, um, you know, where do you find the opportunities within policy? Um, we've got this paper coming out in a couple of weeks now that profiles five different schools and programs that have really innovative models that have found ways to assemble their own different value networks. And on the policy front, usually one of the key pieces is there's, in most states, little exceptions to policy that can give you some of the flexibility you need. Um, so for example, one school, um, it's a blended school. It's got an in-person campus that kids come to during the day. Um, but um, they started off, originally it was a virtual school. And because they're de designated as a virtual school, it changes the way that they have to count attendance. So they have to count attendance, but they're not held to the same requirements about like how many instructional minutes in the building with a teacher of record is the student getting. And so that virtual school designation gives them a little bit of flexibility. I've seen it happen other places too, where if a program gets designated as alternative education or as career and technical education, those policy designations can create, you know, it's not perfect. I think the people in these programs would say like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of things we'd still like to change, but it does give you some wiggle room um, to do things differently. One program, to talk about the funding, one program we profile in the paper is the Virtual Learning Academy Charter School in New Hampshire, um, which is basically the state of New Hampshire statewide virtual school. Um, they serve students all over the state, mostly with supplemental courses. So a student will take, you know, they'll be, take most of their classes at the regular campus, but then maybe take, you know, if their local school doesn't offer a course that they're interested in, or if they can't fit it into their schedule, they'll take a few courses from this statewide virtual school. Um, and something real interesting they did was when they were getting authorized and set up, they negotiated with the state and said, look, we don't want you to pay us on enrollments. Um, we're going to measure student progress based on competencies, and we want you to pay us for the competencies that students master, not, you know, the, the seats we have in our virtual chairs. Um, so, you know, again, like that's, you know, probably a little bit unique because New Hampshire is a small state and they had the ability to make that unique arrangement with their, with, um, their state regulators. Um, but I think that's, that's often where we're at is like, where can you find, within the existing public education system and policy structure, um, where can you find those pockets that shift the regulation enough to be able to pursue things like, you know, not counting, you know, attendance based on, on seat time and not having a designated number of, you know, days of instruction a year and minutes of instruction a year. Um, being able to, um, you know, some states, this is another thing, some states like New Hampshire is actually passed competency-based education statewide. Another program we profile is in um, Iowa. And in Iowa, they have, um, you know, flexibility within their policy for schools to track competencies rather than letter grades on a traditional transcript. 
And so there's just certain states and certain pockets of policy within different states that allow for that kind of thing. I say the other the other thing going on, and this is, you know, I want to say this is a, this is a whole can of worms that has its whole set of issues. And I'm not necessarily advocating for this, but, you know, in Arizona right now where they have universal education savings accounts, that creates a whole bunch of new freedom and flexibility um, for new models to emerge, you know you know, it's, it's an open experiment. And I think there's, there's concerns people raise about like, you know, <laughs> will this, will this improve equity or not improve equity questions like that, that are valid questions to raise. But from an innovation standpoint, um, I think a policy like that enables new models to really get alignment in their value networks around particular things. Cause they can say like, look, you know, we don't have the state being as heavy handed and telling us what we need to prioritize. Uh, we don't have, to serve everyone within a within a different given geography, we can say, look, here's a particular set of, uh, you know, students and families that have particular interests and needs, and we can focus building a model just around those priorities of those those students and families. So, um, anyway, those are, again, it's not it's not an easy landscape to navigate. If it were, I think you know we wouldn't be having this conversation in the first place. But I think those are the pockets where where there's opportunities within state policy to start to figure out where you can launch a new program and let it have a different value network that emphasizes, you know, lets you focus on priorities other than the, the priorities of conventional education. So let me ask you just a, a, a quick innovation kind of question, right? So if we look at innovation, right, one of the things that you look at is I think I grew up kind of as an educator in the no child left behind policy area where there was like we're gonna we're gonna kind of create some dictation downward that uh -huh. then creates conditions from top down about like hey the innovation that we're looking for and that really was I mean there were some really significant changes mm -hmm. I think professionally that I got to experience as a young teacher you know kind of moving from pre-NCLB to into L NCLB now it seems like, you know, I think what we've learned is, you know, innovation happens when there's more kind of individual or institutional or community freedom to innovate and meet local needs or local opportunities. Like what you're talking about in New Hampshire, what you're talking about with the Lindsay School District or what you're talking about these types of things. Um, is it, it innovation, right? It, it, to me, and, and maybe this is a simplification overstatement, I think what we found is that innovation happens better when it's done community or at the at the lower levels. Have has that been a lesson learned, or is that a, a lesson that we continue to learn as we try to figure out that right balance of accountability versus creativity? Mm -hmm. Well, I think what a community understands is um, a quality education is complicated. It's not as simple as drill and kill math, or math and reading instruction. Um, and because it's complicated, you know, the, the educators on the ground and the families on the ground are often the folks that are best aware of what students actually need. Um, you know, to, to tie in the, you know, you, when you mentioned NCLB, I think NCLB did lead to some innovation, but it led to innovation focused on that particular model. So I think, you know, the stars of the NCLB era were the no excuses charter schools. And I think what they did effectively was they launched a new school that was focused, you know, really aligned around test, you know, improving test scores. And they really innovated their model around honing it to deliver higher test scores. Um, 
So that's innovation, right? But it's innovation around that particular set of priorities. I think where a lot of school districts struggled was that they said, look, yeah, the, the federal government and now our state governments are, are pushing really hard on this one set of priorities, but we still have a value network that includes other, other stakeholders as well that actually have influence. You know, we have our, our local neighborhoods and our local school board, and they aren't happy with, you know, if we cut out all of the extracurriculars and all of the enriching parts of our experience and just do, you know, test prep all day, they're not happy with that. And so we can't be res solely responsive to that particular priority coming from that one powerful, but not the only influence within our value network. And so I think that that really created a lot of tension within um, within a lot of schools. Um, but, you know, I think it is, I, I'm of the opinion that where that NCLB um, was relaxed with, S, with ESSA, um, you know, it still requires that you do the assessment, but it doesn't have as many you know, strings attached to what are the consequences if those assessment results aren't what what the, the federal government says they should be. You know, I think that has gone gone a long way to giving a little more, you know, taking lowering the amount of um, prior priorities that come from the federal government and letting therefore the local priorities from other value network um, entities to have more sway on the school system. And I think that's been a good thing because again, like you were saying, a lot of the I think the people on the ground are often the best to know what particular students in a particular community need. And so having them have more influence in the value network is important. So let me ask this question and then get into just some wonderings as we close up. But if I'm an educator, school leader, somebody who's in this work right now, we look at some of the statistics, whether there's an educator shortage or not, right? You know, there's some mm -hmm. debate on how you read the statistics on that. But we do know fewer people are going into education as a profession. I don't think that's, you know, something that's necessarily, you know, um, misaligned with the data. But the question mm -hmm. is, if I'm in this work and this is the profession and the work that I've chosen to do, I think about it now, I'm 24, 25 years in. And I, I look at some of the younger, like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be a part of. But I want to be a part of doing it different. Like, what would be mm -hmm. your encouragement to the educator, the school leader, the classroom teacher, whoever it might be that says, hey, how do I like you talk about these value networks and they kind of send <laughs> these big things and big uh -huh. like, how do I go find a new value network or even begin to create a new value network for myself or for my school or for my community? Mm -hmm. Well, let me let me look, throw out a couple of options, I think, that educators on the ground have one Education, I think, different than most professions, insulates the practitioners a bit from the influence of the value network. Um, so educators on the ground, I think, have more ability to innovate in their classrooms than a lot of other people in other professions. You know, it's kind of a it's a norm in education that, you know, your district is going to hand you here's your schedule, here's your roster, here's your grade level, here's your curriculum, but day to day, no one's coming in and, you know, saying, are you on page five <laughs> and following the instructions exactly as prescribed? Um, you know, we see this, some of the research we've done on curriculum adoption, and you see that like, 
um, 60, you know, two thirds of school districts say we have a, an official curriculum that we've either developed or that, you know, we've purchased from a, you know, a, a vendor, a professional provider. And then you ask teachers, like, what's your official, what's the curriculum you're using in the class? Two thirds of teachers are saying it's stuff that I made up or stuff that I borrowed from colleagues or found on the internet is, is my main source of curriculum. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that reality is what it is because of the norms of the profession, because of how schools operate. And I think with good reason, it's kind of like what you were, you know, you were saying earlier, you know, federal priorities versus local priorities. I think similar, like teachers know their students and teachers, you know, we've established those norms in education because we know that a teacher can't just be a robot executing, you know, executing curriculum orders. They need to be able to adapt to their particular students and their needs. So anyway, but that's all to say, because of that norm, teachers have a little bit of a buffer in terms of what they're able to do. And teachers have the ability to try stuff in their classroom and experiment and do, you know, adopt new models. They maybe can't change the school day. They can't do things that are, you know, a lot of out of school learning. But within their classroom, within their class periods, there's a lot of different things they can try in terms of new models. Um, one of the, you know, an ex something out there that gets me quite excited is um, I before a few years ago, I'd seen a lot of teachers doing this as one off kind of things where they'd say, hey, look, you know, conventional doesn't work. I'm going to try flipping my classroom or I'm going to try a flexible blending learning model where students move at their own pace and I do master based learning. But it was really hard because a lot of teachers were having to kind of reinvent that themselves. Um, but a few years ago, there's a nonprofit that got launched called the, the Modern Classrooms Project. Um, the guys who started it were teachers in the DC public schools that, you know, were frustrated with not being able to serve their students well, knowing that their students often had big learning gaps, their attendance was was hit and miss, and they're like, we can't just do one size fits all instruction, it's not going to work for these kids. So they developed this new model, and then started to share it with colleagues in their building, and then started to share it with colleagues across their district. And now they have a nonprofit that, you know, if you're looking for a new model, um, it makes it a lot easier to try try a new model by using the, the the trainings and the resources they've developed instead of having to you know reinvent the wheel from scratch. Um, but whether it's you know modern classrooms or flipped classroom, um, I think you know it's it's something for educators to pay attention to. Is like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna try and do this within the context of my classroom, um, there's models out there that can give you guidance on on how to do some really cool innovative stuff that may or may not be of interest to your broader school or district. Um, Outside of that, though, again, the limitation there is that there's certain things you can change as a teacher and certain things you can't. You can't change the school day, the, you know, the, the, the school schedule. You can't change how they assign students to particular classrooms, to the classrooms you, you're, you're teaching. And so I'd say the other thing is, like, if you're really wanting to push the boundaries, um, go look for those opportunities that are a little bit outside of the conventional classroom. So, you know, maybe it is taking the job at your district's alternative school or taking the leadership position at your district's alternative school where they have a different set of policies and expectations for their model that let you try things that are different. Um, or, you know, maybe it's, you know, going and starting your own mi micro school like a lot of people have done during COVID. Um, anyway, so I'd say just, if, if you're looking outside of what can I do in my classroom, those are the kind of places I would look. And, and so at the end of your blog, and so this is more so like you know, maybe even prep for a future conversation, but even huh. what what are some of the questions people can start asking themselves as you 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 mentioned at the end of, of the blog that you have a forthcoming paper with Education Reimagined? 
called K-12 Value Networks, the hidden forces that help or hinder learner-centered education. Like what would be the questions that maybe you'd encourage people to start thinking about as they maybe prep to read something like that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, What I haven't thought of before, but I guess let me throw this idea out there is to start looking at why do I do the things the way I do? You know, is it because it is really proven as the one right way to do things for kids? Or is it because I sit within a broader system um, that says, this is how we've always done it. This is what works. This is how we should keep keep doing it. And, And let me be clear, like, you know, the conventional model, part of its staying power is because it does work really well for a lot of things. You know, we like to, those of us that are interested in innovation like to poke at it and say like, well, it's not doing this right, not doing this right, and it's letting kids down this way. But it sticks around because there's a lot of problems in the past that it solved for us. And we've we've maybe even completely forgotten about those problems because it did mm-hmm. solve them. Um, but again, to just kind of ask yourself like, you know, the way we do things now, um, what are the influences in my value network that are telling me that's the right way to do things? And are they maybe worth questioning and challenging? I love it. And we'll leave everybody there. Thomas, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This has been fun.